So welcome everybody here to our second installment of looking at the examination here of the relevance of the law in the New Covenant. Particularly, we're going to be looking at the relevance of the Mosaic Law with regards to the New Testament believer. But let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son to be our final lawgiver. And uh, we say, as Peter did, that where else are we to go? For you're the one with the words of eternal life. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to think well upon these biblical texts, that we would handle your scriptures rightly, and that we would not be severed from Christ, but that we would be found in him on the last day, that we would see the sufficiency of Christ alone for our justification, but also for our sanctification and also for our glorification. We ask that you would help us think then in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to remind you of where we left off last time. Last time, I wanted to lay out that this notion that somehow the law can be conceived in the scriptures as being in three different components, the moral, civil, and ceremonial law, is really not a biblical concept. The New Testament writers conceived of the Mosaic law as a whole. And so we had concluded last time that the Mosaic law as a whole has been fulfilled and terminated in Christ Jesus. And so think about on the screen here, you have this diagram with the Mosaic law in the middle. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant was a covenant of promise, salvation by grace alone through faith alone in the promises of God alone. All right, so the Mosaic law was added to increase sin, as we'll find out today, and In Christ, it has been terminated. And so now in Christ, Jesus, he is now fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant in the new. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is in my blood. Jesus inaugurates and completely fulfills the Abrahamic covenant in the new. And so now, I should say he fulfills it. Leave out the inauguration. He fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. And so what he's doing then is he has established the eternal covenant that will be without end. And therefore, you and I are not antinomians being in the new covenant. We are now under the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Well, Christ is our new lawgiver. Bob is going to be talking about that in his Colossians study today. He's going to have a cross-reference to Mark 9. Pay special attention to what Bob is saying today when he gets to Mark 9. Pay attention, by the way, to everything that he's saying, but make sure you see what he's saying in Mark 9. It's exquisitely important. Christ is the new lawgiver and his apostles. And so we're not antinomian. And if anyone says that we're antinomian, meaning against the law, it's slander. It's just simply not true. Those who are under the law of Christ, Christ is God. We're under the law of God in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. So now, this morning, this is our agenda. I have three things I want to accomplish. Number one, we're going to ask the question, what were the main purpose of the Mosaic Law? You're going to be shocked to find, I think, many of you, that the primary purpose behind the Mosaic Law was to increase sin. To increase sin. To show us our desperate need for a Savior. Now, we'll look at some other purposes as well for it. But number two, we're going to ask the question, is there merit behind Calvin's third use of the law? Now, some of you out there, I would imagine, are not aware of how Calvin understood the third use of the law. Let me explain what John Calvin taught in his institutes. This would have been in the 1500s. He taught that there were three primary uses of the Mosaic Law. 
use number one. The law, and this is his word, the Mosaic law, he said, functioned like a mirror. So think of the first use of the law as being a teaching function in which God's righteousness is revealed and our unrighteousness is revealed. And so it shows God is perfect and you're not. It functions like a mirror. And I have no problem with that. That's exactly what Scripture does for us. Okay, number two, the use of the law in the second, uh, the second use of the law, as Calvin would have it, is a civil use. And so this would be the idea of it's used to restrain evil. Now listen carefully. The law does not restrain evil by changing men and women's hearts. It restrains evil because the civil authorities can punish you if you violate the law. In other words, if you steal, the governmental authorities will put you in jail. That's how it restrains. So it doesn't change your heart so you don't want to steal. Calvin does not make that claim. But the civil authorities will put you in jail if you steal. So ultimately, morality comes not from government, but from God. They are under his authority. No problem there. But here's where I have an issue. And it's with the third use of the law. And the third use of the law is exclusively for believers. Think of it, if you're going to just jot down one word, sanctific- or two words, sanctification, three words, sanctification for believers. <laughs> Sad when you have to keep adding numbers. Sanctification for believers. Listen, let me give you a quote from Calvin himself. He says, quote, this is from his Institutes, it's the Mosaic law for the believer serves as a rigorous enforcement officer who brings us into conformity with the will of God, unquote. Okay, now that's for believers. Now later in his Institutes, he says this, he says, quote, then because we need doctrine, not doctrine merely, but exhortation also, the servant of God will derive this further advantage from the law. By frequently meditating upon it, he will be excited to obedience and confirmed in it and so drawn away from the slippery paths of sin, unquote. Now, Calvin is claiming there that the Mosaic law is able to take the believer away from sin and to do that which is pleasing to God. He's attributing the Mosaic law to sanctify the believer, to make us more holy. And we're going to be asking the question, is that really true? Now, two chapters, or I should say paragraphs down from where I just quoted that, in the Institutes, Calvin also said this. He said, the law is to the flesh like a whip to an idle, bulky ass. He's talking about a donkey there. To arouse it to work. Even for the spiritual man, not yet free of the weight of the flesh, the law remains a constant sting that will not let him stand still. Now, here's what I want you to think about. In Calvin, you have to interpret Calvin, right? So now I'm not just interpreting scripture, I have to interpret Calvin. When he uses work, he's talking about obedience. And so what he's saying here is that the law can function to arouse even the believer to obedience. And so we're going to be asking the question, is that really true according to the scriptures? Does the Mosaic law have the ability to arouse obedience in the regenerate? That's what we're going to be asking. Now, again, let me make a quick distinction. Calvin is not saying Scripture does it. He could have said that. He could have said Scripture does that, but he's saying specifically the Mosaic law. And that's where we would have a problem. Okay, so we'll get into that. Now, the third thing that we're just going to introduce and we'll more fully 
explore next week is this third question. What role, if any, does the Mosaic Law play in the Christian's life today? And so before you pull out Torah and just tear it right out of your Bible, I'm going to show you that the Old Testament is extremely important. The Mosaic Law has been abrogated, but not Scripture. Okay? Is everybody with me? So we'll introduce that concept today. But we want to begin by asking that first question, what was the primary purpose of the law? I'm going to give you a citation from a man that Bob sat under. His name is Tom Schreiner. Tom Schreiner is a very good scholar, one of the best we have in evangelicalism today. Tom Schreiner has the same view we do. I came to my conclusions through Scripture. I read Schreiner. He had the same view. I thought, you know what, I must be on to something. Because if Schreiner sees it the same way, we're probably in good company. Listen to what he says. Great quote. He says, quote, For Paul, God's transcendent purpose in giving the law was to increase sin. For the multiplication of transgressions would demonstrate that no one could be righteous through obeying the law. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ, unquote. I think that that's shocking. Most people, when they hear about the Mosaic Law, they think the last thing they would think of is that the purpose of God behind it was to increase sin. This is shocking. But yet, as you're going to see, it's absolutely biblical. Okay, now, think about in the back of your mind, Calvin's claim that it's useful, the Mosaic Law, to bring about obedience in the believer, Schreiner saying it was designed to increase sin. Does anyone see? Oh, and I'll be taking, I'm sorry, I'll be taking questions at the end. I'm sorry, and we'll be taking lots of questions next week. I want to get through all of this data. And I'm sorry, Brian, um, um, we'll handle it at the end. I, I was, should have said that in the beginning. I'm sorry about that. So that's the main purpose. Now, there are sub-purposes behind the law. And I want to show you a few. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list, but number one, the law will reveal God's character. And this would be the first use of the law as Calvin would understand it. And we would have no problem with that. Certainly, the Mosaic law showed that God was holy. And it also showed that we are not. That's the mirror function of the Mosaic law or the first use. No problem there. It also functioned to separate Jew and Gentile. So think about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul makes the point that the law, and he's talking about the Mosaic law, was like a balustrade. It was a barrier. It was a dividing wall so that Jews and Gentiles were separated. And the Gentiles were far off from salvation and the covenants and the promises of God. But in Christ Jesus, the new covenant, the two men, Jew and Gentile, were made into what? One. So if you want to go back to the Mosaic Law, what are you doing? You're building the dividing wall again. And you're separating. By the way, legalism and moralism also builds that same wall. And that's even worse because now you're not even, you're building a wall apart from God's word all together. And by the way, that doesn't mean you all have to say it. Okay? So the, here's some sub-purposes then behind the Mosaic Law. But what we want to do for the sake of brevity is we want to focus on the increasing of sin that the law fu- functioned to do. So let's look at the main purpose then. And I want to bring you to Romans chapter 5. From Romans chapter 5 all the way to Romans chapter 7 at the end, Paul's primary focus is that the Mosaic law is impotent to aid human beings in doing that which is pleasing to God because it is hamstrung by the flesh. 
So think of the Mosaic law in a combo pack with the flesh. They're always seen together. So the problem then is not the Mosaic law itself. It is the flesh that makes the law weak. Does everybody understand that? So when you think of Mosaic law, think of flesh. And the flesh doesn't allow the Mosaic law to do to do anything in the believer that makes us pleasing to God. That's the idea. All right? Now, let me show you a passage where this is taught. Romans chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, Paul says, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Let's stop there in verse 19. Verse 19 is exceedingly important because there we're seeing taught the doctrine of imputation. One man's sin, Adam, made us sinners. Now, you and I have to say, look, we weren't there. I was not in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, but he was regarded by God as our first representative. When he sinned, I sinned. When he sinned, you sinned. And you might say, well, that's not fair. But don't go there. Because if God did not work via imputation, we could not have the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. And guess what? All of us sin in thought, word, and deed anyway. So it is a gracious act by God that he works via imputation. So Christ's righteousness, then by faith, his righteousness can be credited to our account. And that's why when Bob and I give the gospel, we include the imputed righteousness of Christ. Okay? So that's the point. Now, when we get to verse 20, what's the question? Well, if righteousness then comes from Christ, what in the world was the purpose of this Mosaic law? And so that's exactly what Paul is going to answer now. He says the law came in. Now, let me stop there. Notice the so that. That's a hena clause in the Greek. That's a purpose clause. That's a purpose. Now, some people will say, no, it's not a purpose clause. It's a result clause. And they'll argue back and forth. Guess what? It's both. Because God's purposes aren't thwarted. They lead to results. Why? Because he's all-powerful. So it's both a purpose clause and a result clause. So here's the purpose of God for the Mosaic law. It came in so that the transgression would increase. The transgression would increase. That's the purpose that God had for the Mosaic law. So that transgression, so that sin would increase. I just want that to weigh upon you for just a moment. It's shocking, isn't it? Now, why? Well, he's going to go on to say, he says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Second purpose statement, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, let's focus on verse 21. I want to point and do a little diagramming here. Verse 21, second purpose statement, so that. Sin, as sin reigned in death. Now, sin reigning in death, what we want to do is focus on these prepositions here. There's a date of preposition in, can be taken two ways. First of all, we could think of it as a preposition of means. Death is the means by which sin reigns. So, death is the instrument by which sin has its grip. In other words, it's the, uh, it's, the, uh, it's the effect. Sin is the cause, 
but death is the effect that gives teeth to our sin. It creates the problem. Another way of taking it is it could be a dative of sphere, and that's how it's translated here in the New American Bible. So the idea is when you sin, you dwell in the sphere of death. I think that that's probably the better understanding here, although they're probably not mutually exclusive. Now, notice he gives a chi, a conjunction, even so, he says, grace would reign through righteousness. Now, that through is a preposition of means. So, righteousness is the means of grace. Okay, now, where did righteousness come from? Well, we saw up in verse 19, it was through the one. Through Christ, the many would be made righteous. So Christ is responsible for the righteousness then, which is the instrument of grace. And then there's a purpose statement. It's unto eternal life. And now we have a preposition, dia again, of agency. Who is the ultimate agent behind all these things? Jesus Christ, our Lord. So through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have righteousness, grace, and eternal life. And that stands in absolutely stark contrast to what the law did. What did the law bring? It increased sin. What did Jesus Christ bring? Grace, righteousness, eternal life. And this is why, for example, when you get to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7, Paul says of the Mosaic law, it is a ministry of death. Now, how many want to go back to the ministry of death? No, we want Christ. The law had its purpose to drive us to Christ. It increased sin. Bob taught the same thing in the book of Galatians. Galatians 3.19, let me read this to you. You can jot it down. Galatians 3.19, Paul had just labored in the earlier verses prior to the verse I'm going to quote from you or to you. He had labored the point that the promise came by faith. It was given to Abraham 400 years before the Mosaic law came. So the Mosaic law then comes after the promise, which is by grace alone and faith alone. Galatians 3.19, he asks the question, why the law then? He says it was added because of transgressions. He's saying the same thing that he's saying here. It was added to increase sin. And so then he goes on, he says, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. Let's stop there. Who brought forth the Mosaic law? Well, a mediator did, Moses. Well, then he says it was until, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Who's the seed? It's Christ. Christ is the seed. And so there was a temporary nature designed to the Mosaic law. It was until Christ came. And its design was to increase sin to show us our absolute need. Now, I'm going to show you the same thing then is taught here in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, and again, I wish we could just go through all of it, but we can't. We have to take selective passages here. But Romans 7, verses 7 through 10, Paul asks the question, he says, what shall we say then is law sin? May it never be. And what you're going to find out is that the law isn't the problem. The problem is in our combination pack. The law is hamstrung by the flesh. So the law is impotent to do for the flesh what we need it to do, that is to cause righteousness. Okay, that's the problem. So he says, on the contrary, 
In the right, he says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. Let me stop there. That's Calvin's first use of the law. It reveals sin. And we say heartily, amen. Yes, it does. It reveals sin, shows God's character and the lack of our character. All right? But then he goes on to say something very interesting. Verse 8, he says, But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, notice this phrase. He says, sin taking opportunity through the commandment. There's a gifted scholar. He was an Australian named Leon Morris. He died some years ago, but he was writing commentaries in his 90s. He has a wonderful commentary. If you ever want to buy one commentary that you want to have on your shelf for the book of Romans, buy Leon Morris. It's called the Pillar Commentary Series. And he goes into the Greek and does background research in how this phrase would be used in the papyri and uh, other sources. And what he shows is that the idea that's being conveyed here is that sin used the commandment as a base of operations. This is exactly what Bob was teaching in Galatians. He also has taught this in RCIC radio. It's a fascinating concept. So the concept that's being taught is sin. Think of it like a terrorist group, and I'm not saying, it just, it's just an analogy. A terrorist group uses a base of operations, don't they? They'll launch attacks through a base of operations. In the same way, sin did that through the commandment. The commandment was the base of operations in which sin could launch his attack against us. In fact, notice in verse 8, Paul says it produced in me, this is the law, through sin. It produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. So there we see that the increase of sin was caused by the law, just as Romans 5.20 taught us. And then he goes in verse 9, he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. In this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Now, notice in verse 9, he says, I was once alive, but he says, when the commandment came. What happened when the commandment came? Sin became alive. It was aroused. When the Mosaic law came, sin was increased. Now, again, let's think about Calvin. Calvin is saying that the Mosaic law can be used to produce righteousness. Is that what Paul's teaching thus far? No. They're incongruous, aren't they? Now, let's keep moving on. I want to show you one other interesting fact here. Romans 7, there's a very important verse from verses, or section, verses 14 through 24. And let me explain why this is a difficult section. You'll have the best scholars in evangelicalism that will argue, on the one hand, it's Paul before his conversion, on the other hand, it must be Paul after his conversion. And these are gifted men. And they will wrangle back and forth. In fact, this Dan Wallace I'll cite to you, he's had three different understandings of it. He's oscillated back and forth three different times. Now, let me explain why. What, what is the issue here? Well, let me show you what Paul's saying in Romans seven fifteen. Paul says, he says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Now, here's the debate. Notice all the present tense verses. I am doing. I do not understand. I am not practicing. I would like to do. I am. 
doing, <laughs> I hate. All of those verbs, one, what do we have? One, two, three, four, five, six. We have six verbs there, all present tense. All first person singular, Paul's talking. Here's the debate. How is this present tense being used? Many scholars today claim that the present tense is what's called a historical present. What that means is Paul is talking about himself in the past, but he's describing as if it's him today. And so what they would claim is that it's Paul in his unregenerate state. It would be like, do you know when you're watching a movie and somebody has a flashback? And you go, and they have some, some indication that there's a flashback. And they go back in time, and all they're living real time, what had happened years ago, but you see it in the present. Do you see what I'm saying? So let's say you have a guy, and he's 70 years old, and he has a flashback to World War II. It'll flashback to World War II. Now you're seeing him fight World War II in the present. But you know that it's happened in the past. Is everyone with me? That's the historical present. And so most scholars say, well, it's Paul talking about his unregenerate state. Here's the problem with that. The problem with it is that the historical present is always in the third person. But here it's in the first person. Okay? Here's what Dan Wallace says. He says, the idea of the present tense here should not be understood as a historical present, but what's called a gnomic present. Now, let me teach you a little grammar here. The idea of gnomic is the idea of that's the way it is. When you throw an object up, it comes down. Why? That's the way it is. Because of gravity, right? It's just the way it is. If you live in the United States, you pay taxes. Why? That's the way it is. If you're watching the Vikings in a Super Bowl, they lose. Why? That's the way it is. <laughs> Get used to it, right? So it's the way it is. That's the idea of gnomic. Is everybody with me? It's, so listen to what Wallace says. He says, quote, The apostle is speaking as universal man and is describing the experience of anyone who attempts to please God by submitting flesh to the law. By application, listen carefully, this could be true of an unbeliever or a believer. The present tenses then would be gnomic, not historical, for they refer to anyone and describe something that is universally true. So what Wallace is saying is that it doesn't matter if you're regenerate or unregenerate. If you try to submit the flesh to the law, you cannot do anything pleasing to God. And the beautiful thing about Wallace's quote here is he cuts the Gordian knot. You and I don't have to say, well, it must be Paul after his conversion or it must be Paul before his conversion. That's not the point that Paul's focusing on. Paul's point is the law can't do for you what you want it to do, make you pleasing before God. No matter if you're regenerate or unregenerate. If Wallace is right, Calvin is wrong. The Mosaic law will not arouse you to obedience. It won't. We'll talk later, and I'll be careful. Scripture will. But Calvin didn't say Scripture. He said the Mosaic law. Okay? That's the issue. Let me uh, move on here then. Calvin, let's summarize. What he's saying then is regarding the third use of the law for the regenerate is the law arouses the flesh to obedience. That's his claim. Okay, that's his claim. Now, 
Here's what I want you to think about. We're going to get into chapter 8 of Romans here. I'm going to show you a quote from that. But turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 7, 24 through 25. Remember, I had summarized Romans 5 to 7 shows us the inability of the law to make anyone pleasing to God because it's hamstrung by the flesh. Remember the combo pack? The law is hamstrung by the flesh. All right, that's his. Now, in Romans 7, 24, Paul asks a question, and then in verse 25, he gives a provisional answer, and then he more fully gives the answer to it in chapter 8. So listen to his question. Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am. Let's stop there. Why is he wretched? Because he's attempting, whether regenerate or unregenerate, is, it doesn't matter. He's trying to make himself pleasing to God through the law. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Now, what's the provisional answer? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer. The new covenant in Christ. He says, so then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. So now he goes back to the bleakness at the end of verse 25. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 the new covenant comes in. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're under the law of Christ. You're in the new covenant. But now, let me just summarize one verse forward or two verses later. Verse 3 of Romans 8, he says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. What was the problem with the law again? It's the combo pack. The flesh makes it weak. He says, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The new covenant did for us what the old one never could. So not only does Christ completely fulfill the law on our behalf, not only is he our imputed righteousness and our atonement, but when he goes to the heavenly father, he sends the spirit. And the great promise in the new covenant all the way back to Jeremiah 31 was that the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, would finally enable us to do what the law never could. And so there's a new system altogether. Now, let me just, because I can't show you all of the data, let me just bring you back to Romans 7 and show you something very important. Or I'm sorry, you know what? I've got that in the next slide. Never mind. Disregard. 2 Corinthians 3, 6. Let me give you a summary here. Paul here is talking about the apostles, and he says, we've been made adequate by God. But listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 6. He says, who also made us adequate, that is God, as servants of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, I don't have time to prove this, but notice the letter. There are six reasons why we can prove that that's the Mosaic law. Tom Schreiner has written a wonderful article on that. For the sake of time and brevity here, if, if anyone wants to have those reasons, I can get that to you. But let me just assure you that the letter here is the Mosaic Law. What does the Mosaic Law do? It kills. But what does the new system of the Spirit do, the new covenant? It gives life. And again, that's why in the very next verse, in verse 7, Paul summarizes the Mosaic Covenant as a ministry of death. Now the question is, as we receive Jesus Christ, so walk in him, who wants to go back to the Mosaic Covenant, the ministry of death? I don't. What Paul labors in the book of Galatians is if you began with the system of Christ through faith alone and were given the Spirit, don't go back to Moses for sanctification. Don't try to go back to Moses to be pleasing to God. 
you'll be severed from Christ. Okay, now let me move on. I want to show you that this idea of Calvin isn't just something that Calvin holds, but it's Reformed people today from the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession is all, often the confession that Reformed congregations will put in the section about their beliefs. Okay? Let me show you what the Westminster Confession says. Westminster Confession, 196. It says, it, that's the Mosaic Law, is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions. He says, in that it forbids sin and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve. Now, there's several problems in here, but I want you to see that they are also saying that the Mosaic Law is effectual for the regenerate to bring us to obedience. Why? Because that's what Calvin taught. But is that what the Scripture has taught? No. In fact, what I'm going to show you is an extremely important passage that I think is often overlooked. Turn your Bibles, in fact, to 1 Timothy. I'm going to put it up here in just a moment. 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 9. Let me set the stage for 1 Timothy. Remember, Timothy is a pastor, elder in Ephesus. 1 Timothy, the big issue is he's dealing with false teachers who don't have a a formal heresy. In other words, it's not completely organized. They don't have their own systematic theology or something. But the basic problem with these false teachers is their misuse of the law. They're focusing on these worthless genealogies. And they're trying to impose the Mosaic law on the new covenant people. And Paul is saying, well, number one, you're misusing it. But number two, it isn't for the regenerate, it's for the unregenerate. That's going to be his answer. So another one, number one, you don't understand it, you're abusing it. Number two, it's not for the regenerate, it's for the unregenerate. That's his answer. Listen to what he says. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 9. Paul says, but we know that the law is good. So the problem, again, isn't the law. He says, if one uses it lawfully. Okay, now let me stop there. The idea of lawfully, that's a, it's a fine translation, but you can think about it um, also is the idea of properly. Okay, it, it's synonymous. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. So now he's going to show us what the proper use of the law is. So if you ever wanted to know, what's the proper use of the law? Here you have it. Paul himself tells us. We don't have to guess. We don't have to go to Calvin. Verse 9, he says, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person. Now, let's stop there. Who is the righteous person? Well, that's a believer. I think it's incongruous. There are some that will claim, well, that's a person who does good things as opposed to a a person who does bad things. I don't think that that's what Paul would say. This is a believer. So the law is not made for the believer. By the way, the term made there comes from a verb, kami, and it simply has to do with the idea of something existing or being made for a purpose. Now, I'm just pointing that out because there's no wiggle room here. It's a great translation in the NASB Bible. The law is not made for a righteous person. It's not, that's not the purpose for it. But what is it used for? But it's for the lawless and rebellious. Okay, well, who are, who's the lawless and rebellious? Well, those would be unbelievers. Okay, then he says, for the, and he gives a whole descriptive list of who they are. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers. And he goes on, verses 10 and 11, he says, and immoral men and homosexuals, and kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, 
with which I have been entrusted. Okay, now, let me give you a quote. This is from uh, Phil Towner. I had the opportunity to talk to him on the phone one time um, back at an old position that I was in, and he's a very gifted scholar. Listen to what Phil Towner says about this passage. This is very instructive. He says, quote, Illustrating this appropriate use of the law is the first function of the list. Listen to this. The sins, remember we have this long list of sins, the sins portray graphically a depth of depravity so clearly different from Christian godliness that the irrelevance of the law for believers is immediately felt. The law is irrelevant for us. It's for the unregenerate. That's one of our best scholars in evangelism today, Phil Towner. And he goes on, he says, now listen to this, he says, it, I'm sorry, he says, but there is also a polemical strategy in this discourse, and maybe that Paul implies that misuse of the law, misunderstanding and false teaching of it, are precisely what gives rise to such sinful, sinful behavior that he th- thus accuses the false teachers of heading inevitably in this direction, unquote. In other words, the false teachers are using the law in an unlawful way. And so if they're using the law in an unlawful way, what's it, what's it going to do? It's going to incite sin in them, and they're going to do the very things that are in the list. And so what hope do we have if you want to say in sanctification, look, I started with Christ, but I'm going back to the law. Well, you can guarantee the things in this list here will be yours because the law will incite you to sin. Isn't that shocking? Now, one other thing that I think is absolutely astonishing that's often missed in this passage is notice Paul says, let me point it out, He talks about whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. In other words, the sinners are violating, these unbelievers, everything that is contrary to sound teaching. But what is the standard for sound teaching? He tells us, he gives us a preposition, according to. That preposition, kata, I've done a lot of research in the New Testament. I had to write a paper about this in seminary. Kata in the New Testament often has to do with a preposition of source or standard. So the standard of the sound teaching then is what? The glorious gospel. Notice it's not the Mosaic law. What is the standard for sound teaching? It is the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which Paul had been entrusted. Let me ask the question. Was Paul entrusted with being a preacher of the Mosaic law or of the gospel? The gospel. The gospel as fully revealed in the new covenant. Therefore, what is the absolute standard for sound teaching? Is it the Mosaic law? Nope. New covenant. We're under the law of Christ. If we go back to the Mosaic law, we're not under the standard of sound teaching. The standard of sound teaching is the new covenant. Jesus Christ says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He's the new lawgiver and those apostles that he sends out. He says in Matthew 10, 40, if you won't receive them, you're not receiving me. The apostle Paul and his, his, the other apostles are the spokesmen for God, the spokesmen for Christ. The early church, what did they devote themselves to the Mosaic covenant? No, to the apostles' teaching, wasn't it? This is why. Okay, brothers and sisters, when there's allegations launched against Bob and me saying, look, you're not using the Mosaic law in sanctification, there should be balance. Bob and I are saying, no, that's not the purpose of the Mosaic law. 
we're going to follow Scripture even if Calvin doesn't like it. We're going to follow Scripture even if it contradicts the blessed Westminster Confession. We're going with Scripture. And what we're inviting is everyone to get on board to say, you know what, I'm under the new covenant. In fact, listen to what Paul said. This is the Romans 7 passage. Again, I wish I could have gone through all of Romans 7. And by the way, that's the next book I'll be teaching after Mark is done. I'll be teaching Romans, and so we'll be able to really dig into these things. But Romans 7, 4, listen to what he says. He says, therefore, my brethren. Let's stop there. Who's Paul talking to? He's talking to believers, isn't he? Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Now, let's stop there. The first three verses, Paul was using an analogy. And the analogy is this. In life, he says, if you have a man and a woman who are linked in marriage, they're bound by law until death. But at the death of one spouse, the other spouse is released. And that's why we say in our weddings, until death do you part. So death is that which releases the one spouse from their obligations. In the same way, he's saying, you are dead to the law, so you've been released from it. Now, what's the purpose of being released from the law? Another purpose statement, Hina, so that. So that you might be joined to another. Who are you joined to? To him, that's Christ, who was raised from the dead. Another purpose statement, in order that you might bear fruit for God. How do you bear fruit for God in your sanctification? By being linked to the Mosaic law. Uh, you're dead to that. You're with Christ in the new covenant. And if you're with him, he is going to bring about the fruit of the spirit. This is exactly why Bob has focused for, I don't know how many years it's been now, many, many years on the means of grace. The means of grace are Christ's means to build you up in the fruit. And Bob is going to be, t- it's amazing. He and I didn't plan this out. He came, he's going to be teaching in a section in Colossians that's going to be teaching the same thing today. Brothers and sisters, let me throw it out this way. Galatians 5, 4. When the Galatians who started with Christ, they started with him, when they wanted to go back to the Mosaic law to do something pleasing to God, he said, I'm concerned that you've been severed from Christ. Galatians 5, 4. Here's the idea. You are either dead to the Mosaic law or you are dead to Christ. It's for for you to decide. But for for me and my house, we're going to go with Christ. I'm dead to the law. It brought death and sin in me anyway. I couldn't do it. I'm a wretch. And my flesh had hamstrung the law in every way. We are dead to the law and therefore we're alive in Christ so that we can bear much fruit. Brothers and sisters, the Mosaic law isn't designed for the believer in sanctification. It is not. Now, as I say these things, I don't want you to start tearing out your Torah. (laughs) We're going to talk about some nuances that we want to be careful with now. So before you start just tearing out your Pentateuch, no, the Old Testament isn't a canon within the canon. It is part of the canon. It is the canon. It's with the New Testament. Okay, so what I want to start doing now is laying out, well, in what aspect is the Mosaic Law relevant for us? Okay, now, let's think about this for a moment. The basic concept that I see taught is that the Mosaic Law is revealed where? It's revealed in Scripture. When we read Scripture, Scripture 
has an impact in revelation and instruction for our lives. But it's not in the regulatory and binding nature of the Mosaic Covenant. It is as it's used in Scripture. Okay, now I'm going to give you an example of what I mean by that in just a moment. But I want you to consider the Mosaic Law. What we're claiming here is that as a binding regulatory function, it has been completely terminated and fulfilled in Christ. But when we look at it as Scripture, it has two functions. It's revelatory. It reveals God and His plan, reveals His character as Scripture. And it also is instructional for us. It says you can't do this. You need Christ. It shows us the plan. So what we're saying is, yes, the Mosaic Law is part of Scripture, certainly profitable. Let me give you some passages to consider. Um, you can turn your Bible to this if you feel, or you can jot it down. Luke twenty four twenty seven. Jesus, remember, on the road to Emmaus? He's with his disciples. They're dejected. And if I could just paraphrase, he says, what's wrong with you guys? Didn't you read the Bible? Didn't you read the book? He says, Luke twenty four twenty seven. he says, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets... He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So he's talking about Tanakh. He's talking about Torah, Navim, and Kathavim. The Torah is the first five books. Navim is the uh, prophets, and the Kathavim are the writings. That's Tanakh. It's the whole Old Testament, our Genesis to Malachi. It was all about him, he says. So that's scripture. All scripture, Paul says in 2 Timothy, is God-breathed, isn't it? In fact... Jot this down, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. Paul says to Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus, he says, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them. Verse 15, he says, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Let's stop there. Timothy had the sacred writings. Well, which sacred writings? The Old Testament. And Paul's claim is that's able to make him wise unto salvation. Okay, now, does he say, hey, Timothy, you better keep the Mosaic Covenant? No. He says, you better learn from the Old Testament, or you did learn from the Old Testament, who Christ is. He says, use it as scripture, right? It's not binding that we have to somehow keep the Mosaic Covenant. It's revelatory. All right. Let me give you another one, Romans 15.4. There's another one that Bob had mentioned to me on the phone, too, the same principle in 1 Corinthians 10.6. The scriptures of the Old Testament are an example to us. Romans 15.4, he says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our, our instruction. Here's a purpose statement. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Okay? That's how this functions. Oops, I'm trying to mess with my cursor here, sorry. So, let me have you consider this. We have two options. This is about how we do church. I showed you a whole list of commandments last time in our handout. These are commandments under the new covenant. Here's how we shouldn't use the Mosaic covenant. We should not use it as merely a bully pulpit to try to make people live better lives. Okay, so in other words, Notice God doesn't give a scripture in 600 and some commandments. And Bob and I don't just get up there and say, thou shall do this, thou shall do that, thou shall do this, thou shall, and you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do that, and you should do this. And here ends the reading for the day. Have a nice life, and you, we go home. No, how does God inspire scripture? Well, let's talk about the epistles. In the epistles, 
You're going to have an introduction and salutation. You'll often have a doxology giving glory to God. Then you'll have the doctrinal issues. Paul's going to say, hey, you have a problem here, you have a problem here, you have a problem here. Here's the truth. And then at the end, what does he do? He exhorts. Now, those who want to go back to law for sanctification, what they want to do is tear out all the promises in the doctrine, and they want to just give all the exhortations. And what they claim is, well, that's balanced. No, what that is is the words of men. That's the words of men. How did God inspire the text? It certainly wasn't that way. I want to go by the scriptures. That's what Bob wants to teach. If you're hearing from the scriptures, and I don't care if it's found in Proverbs, I don't care if it's in Revelation, if you're understanding the text of scripture, you're hearing from the Holy Spirit. But if you're going to hear just commands from men, divorced from context of scripture, you're not even hearing from the Mosaic covenant. You're not even hearing from a covenant that was established by God. Now you're hearing merely the words of men who are trying to pound on you and build a new law. And then when Bob and I won't submit to it, they say, well, what's wrong with you guys? We'll divide the church. We'll shake our head for 38 minutes at the Bible study. We'll divide this body. You, you, you jump to our demands. We'll go after people for their innocent jokes. No, we're not going to tolerate it. Go back to Moses. But for me and my house, I'm with Christ, and I won't go back. Neither is Bob. We said from the beginning, this is the gospel of grace fellowship, and we're going all the way. Brothers and sisters, I'm excited. I've never been more excited about Scripture. I've never been more blessed to work with somebody in my life than Bob. A lot of people, they get to read about their heroes. I get to work with mine. Sorry. Maybe I should be a football coach. <laughs> Do one for the Gipper. Come on, guys. Vikings still lose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Vikings will still lose. Yeah, well said. Um, I'm sorry I have gone long here, but you can see there's some passion involved with this, and I think it's helpful for instruction. Now, we're going to have t- lots of time for um, questions next time, but let me lay out something. Here's a, a model of how we should use the Mosaic Law. Let me give you an example from Leviticus 13. Leviticus 13 um, is a good example because it's part of the Mosaic Covenant. It was binding upon those in Israel. This, if, they dis- if, they, if they disobeyed this, they were sinning against God. Okay. Now, what's Leviticus 13 all about? I have to give you the summary because there's so many verses It's about unclean skin diseases. And if you were found with an unclean skin disease, you were excluded from temple and you were excluded from God. And it was no fault of your own. You didn't want the skin disease. You got it basically no fault of your own. Okay? Let me lay out some things to think about. First of all, there were five tests in Leviticus 13 to determine a serious skin disease. That's, by the way, the best rendering of the Hebrew, a serious skin disease. So the priest would have to look at the person and determine if it was a serious skin disease. By the way, I think at times my eczema, I have eczema, I'd be excluded. Okay? I'd have to call Bob and say, oh, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bob would be out. He's got eczema. Well, we'd be short. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, number two. The, the person who was declared to have the serious skin disease by the, by the priest, they'd have to cry out unclean. So there are three things they would do. Number one, they would tear their clothes. 
Number two, they'd let their hair loose. Number three, they'd have to cover their mustache and cry out unclean. What's significant about that is in the ancient Near East, all those things are associated with mourning for death. Not the calling out of unclean, but all the other things. If you were mourning for someone who died, you tore your clothes, you let your hair loose, and you covered your mustache. What are they mourning for? They're mourning for their own death. Death is separation. What they're mourning for is they're separated now from the blessings of God. No fault of their own. Number three. The person was banned from the camp of Israel to live a solitary existence. And people say, well, wait a minute. The only reason that happened was because God was concerned that these contagious things weren't given to others. That's not true. Now, here's why we know that. It's interesting. If you take a case of leprosy, when the person had leprosy in Leviticus 13, if there were blotches on their skin, they were excluded from the camp. But if all of their skin turned completely white, then they were included. They could come back. Why? Because when it was all white, it didn't represent death. God was a life-giving God, and anything that represented death could not be in his presence. Anything that was not whole could not be in his presence. He could not be misrepresentative, misrepresented by his people or the temple or anything surrounding him. And so the holiness of God surpassed all other things. There wasn't, well, that's not fair. Come on now, let's make some exceptions for this individual. No, God's holiness mattered more. I want you to think about that. There was people who were excluded who never came back to the blessings of God. Now, when they died, if they were a believer, they went to heaven. They're, with, they're going to be resurrected. and They're going to have eternal life. But temporarily, what God was showing is that he is so holy and his reputation is so valuable, nothing that represents death can be in the presence of the one who is the author of life. And it doesn't matter if it's, if it's not. It doesn't matter. Things in this life, because we are fallen human beings, by our very nature, we're incompatible with God. And that's what was being illustrated. So how do we use this? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the binding function, there is none. Are we going to tell people today in the New Covenant, hey, it looks like you've got some eczema or, or a skin condition. You can't come to the assembly today. No. We don't go back to the Mosaic Covenant there. But does, is there instruction there? Because it's Scripture, absolutely. It's revelatory. We learn that God is holy. God is different. And he cannot tolerate human beings who, even f- through no fault of their own, represent something that is contrary to his nature. We can't, we can't be in his presence. We learn from that. If I was going to preach a sermon, I would say, we're incompatible with a holy God. And so that's how it instructs us. It instructs us and says we need to be made clean. We need someone that can make us clean. That's what Christ came to do. Turn your Bibles to John 15. By the way, Bob and I did some radio on this. It was very exciting the other day. Um, We really enjoyed this, and you'll have to pull that up on the CIC radio. Um, I'm sorry, John 15, verses 1 through 3. I'm sorry, in this passage here? No, the the idea is that the law, I'm just taking a specific commandment in the Mosaic law and showing how harsh it was, we're not bound to it. That would be the improper use of the law, but it is instructional as scripture and revelatory. So I'm showing the proper use of a certain passage. We use it as scripture, not as binding law. Does that make sense? Okay, 
so John 15, verses 1 through 3, notice verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Let's stop there. All the way back in Isaiah chapter 5, God planted Israel as the vine. They were the vine, but they were under the Mosaic covenant, and they couldn't bear fruit. In fact, remember in Isaiah 5 when we studied it back at TCF, what did they bear? They bore stink fruit. That's what they bore under the Mosaic law. So Jesus comes along, and he's the true vine. Jesus is baptized. Israel's baptized. Israel goes to the Red Sea. Jesus is baptized in Matthew 3 by John. Israel, after their baptism through the Red Sea, they go into the wilderness for how long? 40 years. Jesus, after his baptism, he goes into the wilderness for how long? 40 days. They fell. He succeeded. Then he goes in Matthew 5 to the mount. They went to Mount Sinai. Jesus goes to the mountain and he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, because he's the one who bore fruit for us. The righteousness is found in him. He's the true vine. But then he goes on to say, verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So let me stop there. If you go on in the text, we can only bear fruit by being in Christ, not in the law. Now listen to this. In verse 3, he says, You are already clean. The term katharos is the very term for clean used in Leviticus 13. If you are found to be clean by a priest. He says, You are already katharos. You're clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. How can you be made right with God and clean forever? It's not the Mosaic law. It's Christ. And by trusting in him, there's never a day that someone will come to say to you, you can't be in the presence of God. You can tell him, pound sand, yes, I can. Yes, I can be in the presence of God because I'm with Christ. You're with him. Brothers and sisters, the answer to the question about sanctification isn't found in the Mosaic law. It's found in Christ. He'll make you clean. Now, I I realize we're out of time. Um, We have about a minute. I promise we will be taking questions and answers next time. But does anybody have a quick question? Um, Brian, you had something. On the uh, main purpose of the Mosaic Law, when you said that the purpose in giving the law was to increase sin, I was wondering if, uh, was was it the awareness of the existing sin or was it actually to increase sin or just to make people both both in fact you know where you see both is in romans 7 notice the first highlighted red portion here i would not have become i would not have come to know sin except through the law there it's revelatory that's calvin's first use of the law no problem scripture does that right but here's the other problem that i would have notice verse 8 he says sin remember the base camp of operations commandments the, the Mosaic law are the base camps of operation for sin. He says, The law therefore produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. So sin lies dormant until the law came and increased it. And that's exactly what he said back in Romans 5.20, so that the in transgression would increase. So I don't think you have to go either or. It's, it's both and. Yeah. Thank you. Well, God bless all of you. Um, I just so appreciate all of you and your love for the Word of God. I'm sorry I was so passionate there. I, I'll promise I'll tone it down a little bit here. But uh, 
But praise God, let's be excited about his word and about the promises of God. And I'm so excited to be hearing Bob preaching out of Colossians 2. So God bless you. Let me just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what we have in Christ, that in him we're forever clean. I pray, Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters who want to go back to the Mosaic Law. I pray, Lord, that you would guard them, that you would keep them, that you would put people in their path, teachers in their path, that would be used by you to bring them back to Christ, that they would not look for sanctification through the commandments and the letter that kills. They would not look to the ministry of death, but the minister of life, the Spirit who brings us to Christ. I pray, Heavenly Father, that these great truths would be reinvigorated in your church, that people would live lives that are pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone.